0: Welcome to another episode of Addictions Edited, the SSA's podcast. Um, Today, uh, I'm going to be talking to uh, Dr. Nikki Kolk and Dr. Caroline Copeland about uh, methadone and buprenorphine deaths and, and particularly what happened during COVID. Um they've just published a paper titled Methadone and Buprenorphine Related Deaths Among People Prescribed and Not Prescribed Opioid Agonist Therapy during the COVID-19 pandemic in England. And that was published in the International Journal of Drug Policy. The first author on this paper was Daniel Alderbergonoff. Um now, as we've just discussed, you have uh, rather long titles and affiliations, so I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourselves. Um uh, Caroline, would you want do you want to go first? Uh,
1: yeah, thanks Rob. So uh I'm uh, Dr Caroline Copeland. I'm a lecturer in pharmaceutical medicine at King's College London, and I'm also director of the National Programme on Substance Abuse Deaths.
0: And we'll talk more about uh, the National Programme on Substance Abuse Deaths, uh, or MPSad, during the recording. And um, uh, Nikki, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Sure, so I'm Dr Nikki Kolk. I'm a consultant addiction psychiatrist I work for the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust in the King's College Hospital alcohol care team and I'm a visiting clinical lecturer in the addictions department um, of King's College London. I'm also the clinical lead of the NPSAD.
0: Cool, well uh, thank you both for making time to, to talk to me today. Um, I guess my first question is is about, uh, so it's about methadone and buprenorphine related, um, related deaths and presumably most of those would be overdoses and I think that's probably my first question is, is that you, you look at these kind of year in, year out as part of what MP said does. What, what would you expect to see over a kind of normal year in terms of methadone and buprenorphine um, related deaths?
1: So uh, on an average year, we see very few uh, deaths uh, due to bu- buprenorphine overdose. Um, uh, very, very few uh, alone uh, or with other opioids as well in, in the region of, you know, Tens of deaths, um, whereas that with methadone, I think methadone deaths um, are only second to heroin morphine deaths that we see um, each year. So there's you know a couple of hundred uh, that we get uh, that we get reported to us. So there's a, a very stark difference there between um, the two types of opioid agonist therapy.
0: Uh, And what kind of things do you see with the with the methadone deaths? Are they predominantly overdoses? Um, uh, uh, What kind of proportions do you see are are multiple drug use? Kind of what's the picture there?
1: I'd probably say about 99% are multiple drug use. It's actually quite rare to see a methadone only overdose. And the majority of those overdoses are unintentional, accidental overdoses as well. Uh, Very often, uh, other opioids, it's not uncommon to see heroin also in there, Uh, very commonly uh, benzodiazepines, and uh, particularly in the past five years or so, uh, the gabapentinoids, particularly uh, pregabalin as well as gabapentin.
0: Um, Okay, so you've got this kind of baseline figure, and obviously, globally, opioid um, overdoses are, are kind of important and being discussed a lot at the moment. Why did you... What was it about that first lockdown that made you think, right, we need, to, we need to have a look at what's going on here?
2: So I think at this point it would be really helpful to provide some historical context so and I'd refer people to um, an editorial that John Strang wrote several years ago in the BMJ called Death Matters, and he argues that one of the things we need to do to minimise harm for people who use opioids is to look at where deaths cluster. And one of the things um, that happened in the early 90s was that there was a huge expansion of drug services for people um, who use opioids, and with that came an increase in methadone-related deaths. And there was a government task force and it was recognised that about half of the deaths that occurred because of methadone happened to people out of treatment. Um, And this presaged a a shift in practice around methadone dispensing. So people who were at the beginning of treatment um, would have directly supervised consumption. And this change in practice was associated with a massive decrease in methadone-related deaths. It it really, really plummeted. At a time when the number of people who were being prescribed methadone um, was skyrocketing, and so what we what what happened at the beginning of lockdown is that at a national level there was a recognition that um, access to pharmacies would be constrained by staff absence, by the the encouragement to um, Maintain social distancing and minimise clinical contacts where where this could safely be done. Um, There was also a recognition that um, we have an an ageing population of people who use opioids, who have multiple physical comorbidities, and we might worry about them being susceptible to respiratory infections. We were very lucky on the paper to have two people that were involved in the process. So um, Mike Kelleher um, is the National Clinical Advisor on Addiction and Inclusion Division for the Office of Health Improvement and Disparities, and he has a similar policy role with then PHE. Professor Sir John Strang is a very experienced addictions professor with a long experience in policy advice and involvement. Mike had a call with John Strang saying, you know, we're getting intel that patients may not have access to pharmacies. What well, the fa- access to pharmacies is going to be massively restricted? What do we do? And they had a conversation based around the response to um, Hurricane Katrina in, in the U.S. Um, and which there are, there are a couple of papers out there which were which reflected the importance of maintaining supply to OST, and that was really the priority. That this is, you know, we know that OST is a life saving treatment, and it's really important that people have continued access to their supply. And there was then, based on that conversation, there was then um, a meeting with um, at PHE, with providers of addiction services, and the the group decision was taken. There was that the it was necessary to change dispensing requirements because the the balance between risks and benefits um, had changed. So instead of most people in early treatment being on directly supervised consumption which means is that every day you go to the pharmacy and a pharmacist observes you taking your um, opioid agonist treatments. the majority of people were converted to a two week two weeks worth of take-home supply
0: mm. so this is the the meeting that was on I think the 23rd of March um, uh, where those things changed and I think that's that's really important because so much about that early stage of the lockdown is kind of it's kind of a combination of forever etched in memory, but also starting to drift into kind of history, I suppose, now. So, like, having that as a document is really, really uh, important. But alongside this, and you always also mentioned this in the uh, paper, alongside that change to uh, kind of fortnightly prescribing, mm. um, there were changes in the illicit uh, drug supply market as well. And they, they were different in, in the US and the UK. um. Yep.
2: So obviously, so the reason that we did the paper was, was that um, we perceived that this was, in essence, a reversal of a previous change that we knew had had a benefit. Um, and we thought, well, this is kind of a natural experiment um, to see what reversal does. Um, and it's also a natural experiment that we sort of pushed into. Um, but obviously other stuff was going on um and there's a wealth of qualitative literature about what drug what life was like for people who use opioids during the first lockdown now Um, and there was recognition that for example it was much more difficult for um drug dealers to get around and about um because they quote unquote stuck out like a sore thumb (laughs) um which might have meant that people were looking for different sources of, of opioids um the big contrast between the U.S. and the U.K. is that in the U.S. there was um, a contemporaneous fentanyl epidemic, whereas we really didn't see that at all in the U.K. I think we only had two fentanyl-related deaths um, right. during 2020.
0: Um, the other thing, just before we go on to kind of the actual findings of your study, was just again at that time during that first lockdown, you found that um, numbers in treatment went up. Yes. Uh, is there any idea as to why that was?
2: Well, first I need to tell you why we did it.
0: <laughs> so
2: um, when our paper first went in for review, one of the criticisms was the reason that you're observing um, what we observed is that people couldn't get access to treatment. And while that was certainly true in other... so, And, and that wasn't our experience. So so I, I'm a clinician, I'm on the ground, You know, Mike Keller's on the ground, Jenny Scott is on the ground, these are all our co-authors. We work in clinical services. So our impression was that services maintained engagement and in fact attracted new people so we were just kind of saying well no that's not our experience so we just need to show that this is not because of um, lack of access to treatment and in fact what we did find was that the the, the numbers in treatment went up and so I think this was um, I think this is a natural response to people being faced with a situation of uncertainty Um, and you know we all of us, when we're thinking about changing our behavior there they're things that make us sustain a behaviour and they're things that make us think, oh, you know, maybe it's time to make a change. And I suppose something as catastrophic as a lockdown with all the potential impacts that that might have on support, on um, access to one's drug of choice, um, maybe, you know, change the equation for people. And And I suppose the other thing that's important to say, and I think this is something that we discussed a lot in early drafts of our paper but didn't really make it through to the final draft is that reducing dispensing requirements does lower a barrier to treatment mm. it is more acceptable to people uh, there i mean not some but not all patients view it as um, a really important um factor in in sort of feeling autonomous um, i think other patients don't like it as much um, but certainly for some people, I think it, 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 it removed a deal breaker, if that makes sense.
0: There was some really interesting research. Um, uh, I spoke to one of the authors, I think, last year about, um, about the, kind of the increase in long acting buprenorphine and how that's, uh, some people have found that just incredibly liberating the things mm-hmm. that you're talking about, about being able to kind of get on with their, their lives for a month and, and not have to feel dependent on medical intervention, which, mm-hmm. like, psychologically is a big change
2: absolutely but I mean f- sorry for other people um, so for example in people who are homeless um, the challenge of carrying around and keeping safe huge amounts of methadone was was a bit of a worry for them really um, so for example in the homeless population there was a recommendation that um, buprenorphine should be considered sort of as first line apart from anything else because it's just easier to carry around than you know massive bottles
0: um Okay, so
2: sorry, I I just I just think it's important to say
1: that um, going along with uh, what Nikki has said there in terms of the uh, emergency response to Hurricane Katrina and there being this uh, change in the methadone dispensing. um, We do also need to be thinking about uh, the other impacts which could have increased the drug related deaths, of which there's now a, a greater emphasis on in the paper as well. Um, So you, uh, as Nikki's just mentioned, there were people who were more rapidly initiated onto treatment. Um, So that might be accounting for why there was an increase in treatment that we saw. Uh, But we also have to consider other changes in availability to drugs, but then also availability of harm reduction as well. Um, Places where people might have picked up, take home the Loxone kits might not have been as, as available. And... You know, it was quite clearly a huge amount of pressure was on uh, the NHS and the emergency healthcare services. So if there were calls for um, treatment needed uh, for someone experiencing an opioid overdose, uh, maybe they wouldn't have been got to in as timely a manner as maybe without the um, uh, uh, pandemic as well. So there's a lot of factors going on.
0: It's, there's a lot of context there. Yeah. Um, so uh, moving on to kind of what you did. So uh, caroline uh, this comes to the kind of mp mp sad um so what you did in this study is you you, you called it a uh, retrospective post-mortem toxicology study uh, can you just kind of briefly talk us through the process of, of doing of doing that
1: uh, yes of course so the mp sad functions by being reported uh, to from coroners and coroner officers uh, about details from, uh, from uh, uh, drug-related deaths. So the information that we get given is uh, decedent demographics, like the age, the den- gender, their usual address, um, if they're employed, their living situation, ethnicity. Uh, and then we also get the details uh, pertaining to the death. So we get the record of inquest with the causes of death and the conclusion of the inquest. And... Uh, With that, we get given the full uh, post-mortem toxicology report. In addition, we also get uh, GP records and other health-related records if uh, patients have been in treatment with mental health services or with drug services, um, and also a list of the medications that are prescribed to them as well. So when we say this is a retrospective toxicology study, it's because we've taken uh, the uh, we've looked at the time frame within which we're interested uh, when deaths would have occurred, and then we've looked at the toxicology reports of those deaths. And in this case, we were extracting uh, cases which occurred in the first three months of the lockdown in 2020, so that's the 23rd of March through the 22nd of June. And as a comparator, we then took the same period of time in 2016, 17, 18, and 19. To see if there's a, any step change in trends, and uh, nicely, uh, Easter was in, uh, encompassed in all of those years. And um, there's a little bit of uh, take-home happens for people who are on uh, daily supervised consumption over things like bank holidays and 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 public holidays. So that was all sort of controlled for uh, in itself in those days. And. Uh, so we, we looked at people who had methadone or buprenorphine at post-mortem. And then we also looked at the prescribing status of each of those individuals as well. Now, uh, unfortunately on the MPSAD form, uh, when the, the coroner can tell us if the patient had, or the, c- the c- sedent had been prescribed any medications, uh, the tick boxes for them are yes, no, and not known. And uh, we had a number of not knowns in this cases. Uh, But I went back to all the coroners and even the the coroners that had ticked actually yes and no as well uh, to uh, doubly confirm the the prescribing status of those decedents. And all the coroners got back to us with all cases. Uh, You will note in the paper, however, there are still some people that are not known in their prescribing status. And that's because the coroner couldn't be sure that the decedent wasn't registered with a GP and, and maybe got methadone from somewhere. Um, so we just have to leave those as, as unknown, but it's a very small percentage of cases. That makes
0: sense. And I, I've, we've discussed this before, Caroline, and, and I think I've, I've chatted to uh, Christine about it, to Christine Gooder. Um, there are reasons why the NPSAD data are, are good, are preferable in many ways, because there are quite a few places that report um, drug related deaths, but yours are yours are really the ones to look out for. Um, why is that?
1: So all all deaths have to be reported to the Office for National Statistics, ONS, as a a regulated requirement, and the coroners do report uh, to ONS. Uh, But there are some important differences between the MPsad and ONS. Uh, One of them is the actual date that deaths are uh, allocated to. That might might seem strange, but on uh, on the MPsad, each death uh, is registered with the date of death. Whereas on ONS, it's the date of registration. And that's the date at which the death is reported to ONS. So, uh, and that happens after the inquest has concluded. And on average, for a drug-related death, that takes between about seven to 10 months. Um, so if you get a report of 2020 registrations, what you're actually looking at is all the deaths which had their inquest concluded in 2020, not deaths that occurred then. And so you're actually looking at a mixture of deaths, which occurred probably at the uh, beginning of uh, 2020, which might have include, been concluded in time for the end of the year. But also the majority will come from 2019, which occurred in 2019, but then the inquests were only heard in 2020. And that can be very difficult if you're looking at particular dates. So things like drug policy changes or here a change in dispensing a specific time point um, can be much more difficult to do with ONS data uh, than, it, than it is with the NPSAD data. Furthermore, uh, NPSAD we get full toxicology reports so we can see which drugs were detected uh, and implicated in causing death, uh, but ONS only gets the cause of death. And if you have something ambiguous like multi-drug toxicity, that could be a methadone death it could also be a paracetamol death you just don't know if it's not listed and even something like opioid that's a little bit more specific but is that over the over the counter cocodamol or is it heroin you know two very different things and on the MPSAB, we also get that prescribing detail uh, communicated to us as well so we can delineate if decedents were or were not receiving a legitimate prescription
0: well i mean i'm certainly persuaded um so when it comes to, when it comes to this study like your your, your kind of main two findings and there, but there was more to it which we'll come to were that there was an increase there was a fairly substantial increase in methadone um overdoses um and a much lesser and perhaps uh depending on which way you looked at it, not significant increase in uh, buprenorphine related deaths um can you i guess firstly explain? some of the reasons why there might be such a big increase in the methadone uh, deaths, but also why that didn't happen for the buprenorphine ones to to such an extent?
2: Well, um, methadone is a less safe medication um, because it is a full agonist at the mu opioid receptor. It has more of an impact as a respiratory depressant Than buprenorphine, so we know that the way opioids kill you is they um, suppress your urge to breathe that occurs in your brainstem. That's that's how they do it. Um, And we also know that um, so if the methadone stimulates those receptors fully, buprenorphine is what I like to call a Goldilocks drug, in that it stimulates the receptors enough to get you out of withdrawal, but not so much that it pushes you into respiratory failure. Um, So we know buprenorphine is safer, and if you look at the epidemiological data in general on opioid agonist therapy, there's a sort of risk period around the time that you start on methadone because because of the variable quality of of, um, heroin and also um, the pharmacokinetic variability of methadone. So how different people's bodies deal with it varies a lot. Um you, you have to titrate people up in order to get to a dose that's both safe and effective in sort of managing the withdrawal symptoms and craving for heroin. And we know that during during that period of time, during the first couple of weeks of treatment, there's a slightly elevated risk of death just because of the nature of methadone. We don't see this with buprenorphine at all. So that's one factor. The other factor, which is also, I think, probably related to the fact that one's a full agonist and the other's a sort of goldy-lops drug, is that buprenorphine seems to be less prone to being diverted Um, it seems to have less of a street value um, because it doesn't give you the same quality of of high than methadone does because of its pharmacology so that might also be a factor
0: i mean if, if 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 they have this um these different harm profiles what are the reasons why some people are still um prescribed methadone even though it has that kind of higher harm profile
2: I think this is a really interesting question. And now you're into the realm of speculation. So I'm now talking sort of Nikki the doctor instead of Nikki the researcher because I haven't, you know, it's it's not like I've reviewed the literature on this. So I think there are two big factors. The first factor, the most important factor, is patient choice. Okay. A lot of our patients are really experienced in their recovery journey and have firm preferences about what they like and they don't like. And buprenorphine, my understanding, and I've never taken either of them, but my understanding is, is that... With buprenorphine, you're um, much more alert, and you're much more. Um, your emotions are perhaps more with you. Uh, a lot of people um, who are have have difficulty with heroin dependence have a history of trauma, of psychological trauma, um, and experience very difficult memories and emotions. Um, and when they're on methadone, they they find that those experiences, memories, emotions are are more manageable uh, than when they are on buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is also a little bit more difficult to get onto because um, you need to be in withdrawal Uh, in order for it not to make you withdraw. You remember I said it's a kind of Goldilocks drug, and if you have a significant amount of full agonist, so heroin, methadone, whatever, on board, and you take the buprenorphine, your brain will experience that change between full agonism and partial agonism as withdrawal. So you have to be kind of in enough withdrawal to take it safely but not in so much withdrawal that you can't make it to the clinic. So I think there are some studies that suggest that it's a bit easier to kind of get people stably onto methadone than it is with buprenorphine. Now I think that's changing a bit, it's changing with the depot and it's changing because there's some of our colleagues um, in Canada and Scotland that have devised some really innovative ways of getting people onto buprenorphine. But so it's preference. I think the other thing is we've got to acknowledge that there are cultural differences. Um, in different places, and um, you know, there are some places in the world where everybody's on buprenorphine. I think Finland, everybody's on buprenorphine. Um, you know, I think there there are other places where buprenorphine is absolutely going to be the first line. Uh, I know in the orange guidance, there's sort of equipoise between buprenorphine and methadone. I think that there is a um, there. Are, however, I think that there's a growing recognition that um, methadone does have a different toxicity profile and. As we look after people who are accumulating multiple comorbidities, particularly respiratory comorbidities, perhaps that's something we need to um, think about more deeply. And you know, the, I, I certainly saw some really exciting work at the um, at Lisbon to suggest that there are particular populations where we may start needing to suggest buprenorphine as a first line agent.
0: Um, thank you. I, no, that really makes sense. Um, the the other the other kind of really key finding from your study was about the differences between those people who who overdosed on say methadone who were prescribed methadone and the increase in overdoses um from methadone among people who were not prescribed methadone um that second group of people who were not prescribed methadone does this speak exclusively to diversion or is there are there other things going on there
1: Well, this is where those other factors that I previously mentioned uh, come into play. So one of the arguments could be that fewer people were being able to access treatment, and therefore there's a a, a bigger proportion of people that would have been taking methadone that would be classed as not in treatment um, at the point um, of which they overdosed versus um, those that were in treatment. Uh, But looking at the NDTMS data that we uh uh, we were able to 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 get hold of that's not the case uh it doesn't look like it's the case so access to treatment uh, was not a problem in the UK it might have been a problem in other countries um but doesn't seem to have been a problem in, in in England um other problems that could have been uh associated with that is you know, some treatment uh, was uh, delivered and support given by telemedicine. And there might have been less uh, uh, ability for people who are receiving that prescription to access uh, those online appointments if they didn't have access to available technology, which we know it can be quite expensive and um, uh, maybe not uh, available uh, to people prescribed methadone. So that could have been another barrier. Um, other ones, as I've said, you know, less access to harm reduction, you know, maybe needle exchanges were shut, um, take home naloxone availability, and also the number of healthcare professionals available to treat overdoses. So more would have proved fatal. But in, in that one as well, like you would expect there to have been an increase in both people prescribed and not prescribed if it was a problem with the amount of availability of people to provide care, because there wouldn't be a discrimination between those that were and were not prescribed methadone, so you you would have expected to see a, a, an increase across both populations there, which we didn't. It was just in that um, non-prescribed population.
2: Can I add to that? I mean, I think look, the methadone had to come from somewhere, so it's very difficult to think that diversion wasn't a part of this. I think there's also something we need to consider about the protectiveness of treatment. So one of the one of the reasons people overdose um, in particular times, like when they're released from prison or hospital, is because opioid tolerance changes quite quickly. Uh, and one of the functions of opioid agonist treatment is that you are taking the same amount of opioid regularly um, and that gives you, we think that, that some of the reason that you're protected against o- overdose is because of that maintained level of tolerance. If you're getting your methadone from a street market, I, I mean, I don't know, but I might hypothesize that the the amount you're getting might vary quite a bit and the frequency with which you're able to come by it. So there's something also inherently difficult about getting your meth- methadone from Um, sort of informally um, via informal networks from a protective tolerance perspective. There's also something, I think, and again, this is all speculation, but I think there's something that's very important about the psychosocial support um, that people receive from drug services, that you have that relationship with your key worker and at a time when everybody felt really very much alone, um, you have that point of contact. And I'm not suggesting that some of these are undetected suicides but I certainly, something I've observed clinically is, is that people's appetite for risk and sort of caring about themselves and what happens to them can fluctuate according to the amount of support they have available to them so I think there's, there's something that's perhaps not that measurable which is about um, the extent to which support from, from a drug service even if it's via the phone um, is a protective thing
0: that's it's so interesting the the kind of fine lines between a kind of deliberate suicide and and someone who really doesn't care much whether whether they die at doing this thing or not um i that's really interesting and um, from your data, we were all we're all of those overdoses i'm just remembering keith hum, something keith humphrey's uh said a couple of years ago were they all people who use drugs? We weren't looking at a kind of an increase in kind of family members or people they lived with having accidentally or, or errantly accessed methadone that was unsafely stored. It's it's not that kind of. Were you able to identify that?
1: Yeah, I, I've had this question uh, a couple of times already, uh, particularly with uh, worries about children in the home that might be picking up this brightly coloured liquid and drinking it, and we just haven't had any of those uh, deaths reported to the MPsad yet. Now, it could be that none of them happened, no no deaths occurred, uh, which would be great news, Uh, but unfortunately what I suspect may be the case is that uh, where there have been safeguarding issues or the involvement of social services uh, in the care of a child and that child has then gone on to to die, um, those inquests Tend to take many, many years to be concluded, uh, because a, a much deeper investigation is performed by the coroner. So, you know, we're talking in December two thousand and twenty-two now, which is uh, two and a half years since the um, you know, these measures were introduced. Uh, but on average, it's not uncommon to only have these inquests concluded at three, four years um, after the actual death occurred. Um, I actually had a safeguarding case through uh, probably about six months ago now, Um, but it was somebody who died in 2014 and it's taken eight years for their inquest to be concluded. So at the moment, I'm afraid the answer is that we don't know.
0: Thank you. Um, So uh, just onto some of the other findings uh, that you had. There were plenty in here um you found that the the dose of methadone had also increased so if i understand this correctly the the dose of methadone that people had overdosed from in previous years was less than the dose that people overdosed on during that first lockdown if i
2: for those people in treatment
0: oh for those people in treatment
1: i think <laughs> So there were, on on average, there were higher doses detected uh, in people that were prescribed versus not prescribed, and the people that were in treatment had the the highest dose of method median dose of methadone detected in 2020. So more methadone had been taken by those in 2020 than in the previous years.
0: Okay, and. and... I mean, any, any, I, I, I can't, as a, as a finding, I think it's fascinating, but I just can't get my head around it. Um.
2: So, what we included in the early drafts of the paper that we were asked to take out was some, um, sometimes what you get reports that um, give you a bit of detail about the circumstances where the person was found, um, or comments about clinicians, from clinicians that were interacting with the decedent. Um, and I think we had a couple of reports that, you know, reports of people. Not being able to use their methadone in a regulated way, um, being surrounded by empty bottles of methadone, these for people in treatment. Caroline, do you want to come in there? Uh, yes. So there were um, reports of
1: people uh, being surrounded by empty bottles. Bottles. There were reports of people um, from from families and friends that said that people had been witnessed to be drinking straight from the bottles. Uh, as opposed to dispensing out the amount that they should have been uh, receiving each day. Uh, there was even a, uh, a case which was a, uh, a young gentleman who had been dispensed something like two liters of methadone and hadn't even been given a measuring cup or spoon or anything to be able to measure out how much they were meant to be taking each day. And the coroner ended up issuing what's known as a Regulation 28, uh, which is a notification that uh, something was done that should not be done and needs to be stopped from happening in the future. Uh, And that was uh, directed at the pharmacists uh, who had dispensed that methadone, uh, saying that there should have been greater care and attention in in how that had been uh, dispensed.
0: That's fascinating. One of the things I love about this kind of research, I mean, particularly with the uh, pandemic research, is there are these big opportunities for, like you say, a natural experiment um, where kind of so much changes. And then when you come to the findings, there's just so much context to it. There's so much to understand about how one very simple and seemingly straightforward change had an impact on just everything. You know, the the, the social context, the treatment context, the drugs available, Mm -hmm. how they're taken and, and, and how that all impacts on... Um, on fatalities Uh, it's it's a fascinating piece of research
1: that's one of the really
0: important aspects of uh, this study is that we're
1: catching in the NPSAD cohort people who were and were not engaged in treatment Uh, there's been a few um, reports by uh, services that provide treatment saying that their clients uh, did not suffer any uh, you know particularly noticeable increases in drug-related mortality during the pandemic and that is what we see as well but unfortunately they're not capturing those people out of treatment and they're a very uh, uh, very difficult to engage cohort and so being able to look at the impact on that group of people is very important to be able to do.
2: I think subsequent whenever there's a step change, you know, there, were, there was that catchphrase in the UK of "build back better," mm. and you know, I think it is a time for drug services to think about a change that we made um, and what was that impact, and what do we want to do differently going forward. And there is an argument being put forward to say, well, actually, there's probably helped engagement and was a pretty safe thing to do, and directly supervised consumption is burdensome on the patient and expensive so is this a change that we should just carry on with Mm. Um, and i can see a a real argument for that Um, i think it's i suppose it needs to be weighed against the harms and but i think i think what's crucial is is the involvement of people with lived experience in this conversation because I can't fully answer a question um, which is around you as a person who's voluntarily coming into treatment, needing to tolerate more restrictions on your day-to-day life because it's it's a bit of a pain to go to the the pharmacy every day. In order to protect people who aren't in treatment, I mean, is is that a fair thing to do? And and i don 't know what the answer is to that. Um, I think what, one of my experiences writing the paper and conversations with reviewers is is, is um, that that i I started out saying well this this is a paper about diversion, and what was sort of pointed out to me. Um, in a very helpful way, was I wasn't seeing the big picture. And I've been reflecting on it, saying, well, why, why did I so clear? And, you know, and actually, to be fair, when I read the other papers about the same subject, they've written entirely as raw diversion. So it's clearly something, you know. So I was like, well, what's in this? Uh, because there was a lot going on at the time. And I think some of it is about the, the, the professional responsibility we bear as prescribers. You know, I really don't want the methadone I prescribe to kill anybody. Um, and I care about that immensely. And I really want to know whether the decisions that I'm taking or, or you know me and m- I and my, my peers as addiction psychiatrists in the UK are taking, what the consequences of those decisions are, intended and unintended. Um, because methadone-related deaths are different from heroin-related deaths because doctors play a part in them and pharmacists play a part in them. And, and that's that's something that we have responsibility for
0: and and I think I think that's one of the really interesting things about this is is that that alongside ensuring that those prescriptions are appropriate or as part of that process it's so important to understand the context in which those prescriptions are are being used the the settings the amount of treatment that person's accessing mm-hmm. um uh, you know the regularity with which they have or choose to to pick up, and whether or not that's supervised, that has an impact on the risk profile and uh, and the risk of overdose, um, and that's that's just so important. But
2: that's the thing is that what we didn't see was a risk to the people in treatment. Mm. So you know, yes, there was a slight increase uh, in, in line with previous trends. I mean, we have we have a trend line that's sort of going slowly up. Um, but but that's the thing is that it doesn't seem like that change in dispensing policy hurt people in treatment that much, or not much. You know, they, we didn't get a signal from there. It hurt people that weren't in treatment. I think that's a real dilemma because what is the responsibility of the person in treatment to people outside of treatment?
0: And I, I suppose it, it, it's, it's one of those things where it then becomes a kind of almost a philosophical dilemma, and a way where you you apply broad principles of, of harm for one person, harm for another, and treatment for for one of those people, and try and come up with a policy that that, that does the least harm, that that improves treatment as much as possible. Were, were there any direct uh, kind of recommendations from your study for policy for treatment, other than this really needs to be to be reviewed and, and taken seriously?
2: I mean. I think in early drafts of the paper, we said that you know policymakers should really should take the data into account when they're deciding what to do about you know directly supervised consumption. I think the, the, the reviewers felt that you know because of the correlational you know the observational nature of our data, that potentially making recommendations was a step too far mm-hmm. um,
0: it's a fascinating piece of research for anyone who's interested in, in opiate uh, prescribing, in um, a treatment for addiction and in the impact of the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, it has a lot of findings in, in, in one, uh, one rather superb paper. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Dr Caroline Copeland, Dr Nikki Colk, uh, for your time today.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having us on.